Cineo Health Podcast listeners, we will soon be kicking off a series of episodes focused on Asia Pacific, featuring interviews with experts based in the region. Robbie Chana will be hosting those episodes. So keep your ear or eye out for our APAC edition of Cineo's Health Podcast coming soon. Today on the Cineo's Health Podcast, we'll be talking about real-world evidence in Europe. I'll be joined by Alistair McDonald from our clinical teams to discuss how the evidence that we get in the real world, that is you, me, and everyone else that is going out there and not in a clinical trial, but is actually taking drug or not taking drug and getting sick or not getting sick, getting well or not getting well. All those data can end up being real world evidence. And we'll talk about real world evidence in the EU. I encourage you, if you haven't listened to it yet, to go back to the Real World Evidence podcast that we had earlier with David Thompson to understand more of the U.S. perspective. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I caught up with Alistair at a leadership conference, so there'll be a bit of background noise. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Real World Evidence in the EU, next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Alistair McDonald, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you. So you're Alistair McDonald, but you're not the Alistair McDonald, CEO <laughs> of Cineos. No, I'm the uh, I'm the good looking Alistair McDonald in the company. Oh, that that I will now be able to tell you apart on site. Thank you. <laughs> so tell me what you do. I um, sit in what's known as the real world late phase business unit. We run all the evidence needs within real world for all of our clients. I am the head of client engagement within that. So we're the front end activities within the business unit. So usually the first port of call for any of our potential clients or existing clients, when they've got real world evidence needs to discuss, usually it's the client engagement team who'd be their first point of contact. All right. So I act as a subject matter expert myself, uh, with some of those clients, but also I run that team of client engagement specialists within the company. All right. So you've said a lot of words. Like we have, first of all, late stage. So this is clinical trials, phase three, phase four, or just phase four? No, it's not really. Late phase is a terminology still used in the industry, but actually we use it still because industry likes that terminology. But I don't think it's really that helpful nowadays moving forward. Real world evidence is a journey that you need to start as soon as possible in the clinical development space. In fact, when we speak to clients, we always tell them, it's never too early to consider real-world evidence needs in your clinical development program. So late phase is a bit of a misnomer, actually. You really should start as early as possible, phase two if you possibly can. But we still use that terminology because it's an industry standard. And that changed in the U.S. where real-world evidence now became more important in clinical trials or data that are more acceptable to the FDA. And I understand, has that changed also in Europe to where that is now something where we look earlier because of regulatory standards? Or should we always have been looking at real-world evidence and we just didn't get around to it? We always should have been looking at real-world evidence. I think payer expectations has been the backbone of real-world evidence collection for a number of years now, particularly in Europe, where the threshold of evidence required to meet payer needs in Europe has been, I would say, somewhat more advanced than it has been in the US in the past. I think in the US now, though, we're beginning to see that move from evidence-based medicine to value-based medicine, very much the same way that happened in Europe some time ago. So the trends that we're seeing in real-world evidence and the reason for the growth in that market are, are global, actually. There are four key stakeholders who are driving the need for real-world evidence, irrespective of if it's the US, Europe, or Asia-Pac. And that's 
care expectations, as you've reflected there. It's regulatory expectations which are changing. There's the expectations of physicians for evidence, and there's the patients themselves who have expectations around evidence that they would require now to be an advocate for a drug. Within those four stakeholders, there are differences that you see from the US to Europe. If we just address each of those four, if you look at the peer expectations in Europe, I would say there's been quite a long track record of the need to collect additional evidence over and above your safety and efficacy data in Europe to demonstrate value for peers to accept and adopt your drug. And as I say, I think we're seeing more of that in the US now. Importantly, I think we're seeing regulatory changes both in the US and in Europe. In Europe specifically, we're seeing a lot of drive from regulators to get expedited access to innovative drugs in particular. So, for example, in Europe, through the European Medicines Agency, there's now a scheme called PRIME, which is for priority medicines. And it's a mechanism by which to get expedited approvals and access of innovative drugs for patients who require them. But part of that is an understanding for the regulators that, yes, we can maybe have expedited approvals for drugs, but there's conditions to that, which is we want you to then demonstrate downstream that there is the sufficient evidence to demonstrate the, the value of that drug. So in Europe, for example, with Prime, we've seen about 215 applications to have Prime status for drugs. Around about 48 of those have actually been granted. But even with those 48 approvals for Prime status, there are conditions to many of them around the collection of additional evidence to support the access of that drug to patients. And much of that is collected through real-world evidence. So from a European level, we're seeing the European regulator look for real-world evidence to help support the decision-making process. Even within local countries within Europe, though, we're seeing similar schemes to give access to drugs to patients, but with conditions. So, for example, I happen to be British. If you look in the UK, there is an early access to medicine scheme run by the regulator in the UK, which is the MHRA. But again, a lot of the conditions they put on that early access is to collect additional data to demonstrate the value of that drug. In most cases, that's real-world evidence that provides that. So the regulatory position is changing in Europe, but I think it's reflective of the regulatory changes we're seeing in the US as well. For example, in the US with the 21st Century Cures Act. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the FDA being mandated to accept real-world evidence as part of regulatory submissions in some instances. And indeed, the, the first draft guidance from the FDA around what that needs to look like has been recently published. And most people in the, our industry at the moment are just trying to evaluate what that's going to look like and what that will mean for real-world evidence collection moving forward. So that regulatory change is certainly global, but we're seeing it in Europe. I think from the perspective of data collection as well. We're seeing huge changes in the real-world evidence space. So compared to 10 years ago, for example, the access to data to drive decisions is changing greatly. But also importantly, the ability to analyse data is changing greatly. I'm sure you're very familiar with lots of buzzwords like natural language processing, artificial intelligence and so forth being used to drive analytics of data. And again, that's no different in Europe as it is to the US. And we're seeing a large demand within our organisation to understand where is the data that can support decision making and informed decision making for drug adoption. And how do you analyse that data in an effective way to create evidence? 
Is that easier in Europe or harder in Europe than it is in the U.S.? If you're thinking about real world evidence and you've been collecting it in the U.S., is Europe a nightmare? Is Europe a free fire zone? Just <laughs> show me where it is. Yeah. In the U.S., clearly there are aspects which makes it simpler. So a common language across the whole country, sure. for example, commonalities in the way that patients are dealt with in the healthcare system. So that clearly makes it somewhat easier. I think there are very mature both governmental and commercial institutions that can handle data in the US. So the US has got some simplifications, I would say, that you don't see in Europe. Because in Europe, we have a fragmented system. We have multiple countries, for example, with their own local laws as well as European law. We have different languages and we have different healthcare systems. So what we see in Europe is a more fragmented process. There are some areas, for example, the Scandinavian countries, where we have really quite sophisticated access to data, very good electronic medical records of patients and so forth, and reasonably good access systems to get a hold of that data. Do you just rely on those data for the rest of the EU, or is Scandinavian data just good for Scandinavia? You can make extrapolations. So yeah, there are a lot of uses of Scandinavian data to demonstrate your point. Similarly, with UK data, there is mechanisms to access data in the UK, sometimes through governmental institutions. So, for example, there's a well-established database in the UK called CPRD, another fancy acronym. But basically, it's access to data through the Department of Health, as it's a governmental institution in the UK. That data is great for the UK, but it also acts as a great reference for other countries to extrapolate that data and say, if this is what happens in the UK the likelihood is you'd see something somewhat similar in Northern Europe, for example. That sounds very similar, actually, to the U.S. when different payers will rely on Optum data and one analysis done by a pharma company in conjunction with Optum. Yeah, exactly. And that access to data, I mean, we're seeing a lot of movement in this space. One of it is driven by technology. The second one is it's driven by demand. So we're seeing a lot of innovative companies begin to establish themselves in this area. And certainly here at Sineos Health, we're establishing strategic partnerships with ones that we think are currently best in class or first in class. So a great example of this would be a company called Trinetics at the moment. So it's a commercial organization, but they have fantastic access to data at the patient level that we can use to help optimize protocol design. It can help us identify the right sites and the right patients and where they are. But it can also help create large data lakes that we can interrogate in order to try and see themes or trends in healthcare. So these sort of organizations were not as prevalent 10 to 15 years ago. And what we're seeing is a number of these now operating in this space. I think the challenge for us will be over the next five to 10 years, how is that going to mature? Which companies will innovate? Who will remain best in class and first in class? And how can we work with them most successfully to make sure we're meeting the needs of our clients? So we've talked about the problem getting bigger in the EU and the problem being harder in some ways because of the fragmentation in the EU, easier in some areas, but harder in others. We've touched on it a little bit. What's the solution going forward for real-world evidence in the EU? That's a great question, Jeff. I think a lot of people obviously are looking at the European level to see if we can get some sort of consistent integration. So, for example, the system Prime, which I described to you earlier, is a good example of the European Medicines Agency taking that consolidated view on behalf of Europe. I think there's the hope, obviously, that there will be a European element to this, but obviously the political situation in Europe is somewhat volatile at best of times. Right now, with the imminent departure of the UK from the European system, for example. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> there are questions around what will be the impact of Europe-wide initiatives like Prime, for example. 
But certainly, I think the best way to overcome the distinct geographical and cultural differences in Europe is to have a pan-European organisation that supports that. Everyone working in the healthcare industry, certainly MySpace, would welcome the continuation of that sort of method of work. Hoping that we see that in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Alistair McDonald, thanks so much for joining us on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you very much. It was a great conversation with Alistair McDonald. If you haven't listened to them yet, I suggest you go back and listen to The Real World Evidence with David Thompson, one of the early episodes that we did, maybe even episode one within this podcast series. And then also what Alistair mentioned was the 21st Century Cures Act. We have 10 things in the 21st Century Cures Act, including real world evidence. So you can listen to that also from a previous episode of the podcast. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, or if you just want to talk through a particular challenge that you're having at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at Where consultants, that's what we do.